when the conductor came to collect our tickets on the night train from Chisinau to Bucharest, the young woman sitting across from me seemed startled when he didn't merely stamp them and hand them back. Just lately, I've always wanted to make sure I had my documents with me, you know? She said in this crisp Kivian clip. She'd only brought a backpack with her for the 15-hour train ride. And I realized this was just one leg of a much, much longer journey. Since the start of Russia's war in Ukraine, millions of people have fled their country in search of safety elsewhere in Europe. Most of those are women and children, as men of fighting age must stay and protect the country. So often the story of a war is told through the eyes of men, soldiers fighting heroically on the front while politicians battle for control of the narrative through speeches and summits. But as more and more women stream out of the country, it's falling to them to tell the world what's happening in Ukraine and to highlight their role in forging their country's future. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Erin Brown. I traveled to Romania and Moldova to hear firsthand from those fleeing the Russian bombing campaigns what life was like inside the country under siege and how it's changed for them since they've left. For so many of the women I spoke to, the war has been more than just a moment of trauma. It's reshaped and refined their vision of themselves, their country, their families, and their future. It's also drawn out a kind of grit and immense solidarity among women that many of those I spoke to said they'd never felt before. Today, we're going to hear the stories of four of those women. Before the war, they were a data analyst, a personal stylist, a teacher, and a stay-at-home mom. There's still all those things. But now, as they make their path through this war, they've also become volunteers, refugees, travel agents on a kind of underground railroad out of harm's way, mobile pharmacists, and magicians who can transform a terrifying car ride into an adventure for a toddler. Before we start, if you want to get all the latest from Beyond the Headlines, hit subscribe in your podcast app. The woman sitting across from me on the night train from Chisinau was 27-year-old data analyst Victoria from Kiev. We'd both lucked out. Though we'd bought second-class tickets, a family of four was traveling together and asked us if we'd be willing to trade our upper bunks in their cabin for two first-class tickets instead. So we hauled our bags to the first-class wagon and set up camp on the plush damask benches in our little compartment, tickled by the very Soviet-style luxury. But as we settled in for a long night of chatting, Victoria told me luck hadn't always followed her. She told me, there's this kind of bad joke I've carried with me my entire life. So my name is Victoria, and I was named in honor of a holiday. In Ukraine and Russia and several other parts of the former Soviet Union, the 9th of May, which is the day that Victoria was born, is Victory Day the day marking the end of World War II. It's a big deal in that part of the world. In fact, they don't call it World War II, but the Great Patriotic War. Victoria told me, ever since I was a kid, all day long on my birthday on TV, there weren't cartoons or regular shows, but war films. On the main square, there were military parades. Everyone all day long on my birthday was talking about war. Victoria told me she was a sensitive kid, and she picked up on all the war talk. She'd ask her parents, what was this war? What, did, did people die? And they'd tell her about it. 
How 27 million people, civilians and soldiers, died in the Soviet Union defeating the Nazis. How it was the single greatest struggle and victory in their nation's history. Despite all the military parades and lack of cartoons, there was one bright spot on her birthday. The fireworks display, which her parents told her was just to celebrate her, their little victory girl. As she looked up at the bright bursts of pink and yellow, she'd make her birthday wish. She said, you know, seeing all those war films as a kid, being surrounded by it all, I'd make my birthday wish each year that there wouldn't be a World War III. I was so worried about it, she said. And you know when you're preoccupied by some kind of fear, and then it happens? Yeah. There's a refrain I heard over and over when I was talking to people about the war. The sense that up until the very last minute, no one believed it would happen. I didn't, to be honest. And neither did Victoria. The day before the war started, she went to work as usual. On their smoke breaks, her co-workers were talking about Putin's unexpected move earlier in the week to recognize the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics as independent. But it all seemed so abstract. She told me, I went out the night before, totally calm, to have dinner with my friends. And I ended up heading home quite late, and it was so quiet on the street, like the calm before the storm. And I went to bed, and a few hours later, 4 a.m., everything started. Victoria lived on a top floor in a high-rise with a good view over the left bank of Kyiv. And from her window, she could see the explosions as Russian paratroopers landed at a nearby airport. Her whole Instagram feed lit up with notifications from around the country of people seeing the same horrors. She decided she wasn't waiting around to see what would happen, and a friend with a car offered her a lift out of town. She told me, we thought we'd go somewhere, just out of town, or, or maybe another city. But every 15 minutes we'd look at the news and realize we needed to go further. So we'd pick another city. And as soon as we'd get there, we'd read the news again and understand we needed to keep going. When we left, we had no idea we'd end up in Moldova. By the time they'd traveled a full 24 hours, the situation in the country had changed so drastically that what they thought would be a few days in the countryside turned her and her friend into refugees in Moldova. Those few hours had changed more than just the geopolitical situation in Ukraine. They'd transformed its people, too. She told me, no one expected Ukraine's response to be so cohesive. You know, I'm looking at all my social media, and I'm looking at all my friends and the girls I follow who, like, up until last week only took photos of salads at restaurants. And now they're posting all the time. We need help there, or come volunteer here, come weave nets for the army. Or even, like, those same fancy restaurants have completely turned over their operations to making food for volunteers or the territorial defense. And I'm looking at it and going, wait, guys, is that really you? No one would have expected everyone to be so cohesive. But for Victoria, the biggest shift wasn't just in what she or her friends post on Instagram. Though, it is surreal to look back through her dreamy feed of mostly fashion shots from her travels around Europe and Ukraine from just a few months ago. The change is in how she sees her future in her country. 
one she is now eager to return to after the war. Honestly, she told me, before the war, we kind of looked at our country and all the corruption and didn't see a future there. Everyone was just thinking about herself. No one wanted to help each other. But then all this happened and you realize we just needed to be shaken awake. You know, before the war I had this idea. I was going to go to Europe and try to get citizenship somewhere there because Ukraine was so corrupt. But now, honestly, I don't think I will. There's not another country on earth that will protect me the way my country protects me. The great coming together Victoria described, that sense of solidarity and unity, is something I noticed not only in Ukraine and among Ukrainians, but among those on the fringes of this conflict, too. I spent much of the first part of the month in Moldova, one of Europe's poorest countries, which is rallying around the thousands of refugees streaming across its borders. In just six hours on the 24th of February, the very first day of the war, Moldova transformed its largest COVID hospital, itself a kind of field clinic set up in their expo center, into a refugee reception point with some 600 beds and an army of volunteers doing everything from getting people COVID shots to sorting the massive amounts of food, clothing, and hygiene items that Moldovans had donated to the cause. In the supply tent, I ran into Tatiana Shepkievich among a group of volunteers as they were shelving bottles of homemade pickles and preserves that someone had dropped off. I asked them why they'd come to volunteer. It turned out they were refugees themselves, from Odessa, the major southern port city in Ukraine. Before the war, Tatiana was living her dream life. She was a stylist in the fashion industry, a personal shopper for wealthy women who wanted to look their best. She'd arranged shopping trips to Milan or Istanbul or Paris. She knew the difference between organza and charmeuse, the benefits of a bias cut or a boat neckline. Do you know what a go-bag is? She asked me. Well, now I know. I used to put together capsule wardrobes, and now I know what to put in a go-bag. Her husband had woken her up on the 24th after a fighter jet flew low over their house in downtown Odessa. He told her she had to leave, so she packed up a few essential items, warm clothes, documents, phone charger, in her go-bag. It took them nearly 36 hours to get just 60 kilometers to the border with Moldova where he dropped her off and said goodbye. But the feeling she had once she crossed the border wasn't relief. Anyone who's been spared feels this sense of shame, she told me. You feel ashamed that you're safe, and you just feel terribly useless. You know, she said, I'm not even talking about people going to the front. It's just, there are these peaceful citizens, and tomorrow a rocket could land in your front yard. Even if you didn't go to fight, you could just be sitting at home and you'd die because they're bombing regular people. She was trying to describe the feeling to me, this sense of sitting in Moldova and watching the news, But she had to catch herself. Sorry, she said. I just, I don't want to cry, because if I start, I don't think I can stop. But it's just, just this realization that this could be the very last time. She trailed off. 
In times of tragedy, a great helplessness washes over people, and it can be tough to fend off, especially when there's little concrete you can do. Being of use means being in control, no matter what else is looming. For Tatiana, she found some solace in the refugee center. Personally, she said, volunteering has helped me manage some of that anxiety. Because even if it's just a little thing, I, I feel like I'm part of something. That I can have a small bit of influence in the grand scheme of things. She said she also takes strength from the immense solidarity among women in what she called this hellish little episode. You don't know Ukrainian women, she said. They're so strong-willed and can stand up to any kind of challenge. Everyone is trying to help with something, sending messages or phone calls, even people who don't know each other in real life. Like in one city, somebody's posting on their stories information about meetup locations or aid stations in another city. Here, there really are no strangers or outsiders. But it's such a shame that it took this kind of tragedy to unite people. Of course, more people have stayed in Ukraine than those who've left. And for many stuck in besieged cities, that feeling of needing something to beat back the grief and stress and helplessness weighs heavy on them, too. I called up my friend Katya Niparka, who you may have heard on an earlier episode of Beyond the Headlines, when she and I spoke on the second day of the war. She'd been determined to stay in Kyiv, the city she grew up in and loves. I called to see how things had changed in the weeks since we first talked. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you've been doing the last week in Kyiv? I, I've been doing two things. <laughs> I either uh, follow the news or I try to connect uh, like uh, different people and um, they have some needs. Like we have uh, this list of medicines uh, people need. So I'm looking online in different pharmacies if they have what I need. And then I just uh, go. I, I don't have a car, but there is a pharmacy close to the uh, place where I'm right now. And I went there and I found... Um, a lot of things. Despite the shelling outside of Kyiv, the worst of which is in Irpin, the suburb where her parents live, Katya's been trying to keep busy using her time to help fill the gaps where the supply chain has broken down in the city. She even signed up to volunteer with different government organizations, but was told they'd already had more than enough people sign up. Yeah, yeah. just looking for an opportunities to do something and to kind of uh, distract myself from the news and all this craziness because it uh, really, when you do it for the whole day, uh, you feel like terrible. Like you have good news, but you have so many bad news and children die and people die and you're like, it's hard. Emotionally, it is um, hard to stay away from this. So that's why it is important to concentrate on something you can do right now to help. I took a lot of solace knowing I wasn't the only one doom-scrolling social media each night. We talked about seeing a video go viral of what turned out to be our friend's street in Chernihiv, nearly leveled by Russian bombs. At one point, the camera pans to catch her little one-story house with its side collapsed. Her parents and brothers had been inside and narrowly escaped. It all feels surreal. For Katya, being aware of the stakes can be a drain, but it's also a motivation. She sees it in her friends and neighbors, too. I think it started, like, in this whole, like, movement of... Um 
we call it гражданское общество. So it's like society. So people feel like they are responsible for this country. They are responsible for this society and they should contribute and invest. And they want to uh, participate in what is going on and help. And uh, there are many people like that. So if you don't have uh, kids, for example, or maybe like old parents or somebody you have to stay with, of course, you will go and you do something. And there's a lot that needs doing, particularly to keep the war effort rolling. Whether that's signing up for the territorial defense, sorting ammunition, or weaving nets. But for Katya, being in Kyiv, staying in Ukraine, is more than just about helping those on the front with material goods. Being present is a form of protecting the country, too, of securing its future. There is a lot of work, and I think they feel, like, responsible for this. That's why they stay. Yeah, yeah. If we, if we leave, then <laughs> why then our army should fight? <laughs> Perhaps the biggest burden for protecting Ukraine's future has fallen to mothers. Most men between the ages of 18 and 60 aren't allowed to leave the country as a way to ensure that there are enough soldiers and territorial defensemen there to protect the physical territory of Ukraine. But when it comes to protecting the future population, it's mothers who've had to pack up their kids and flee abroad to try and keep them safe. It's not something you ever really plan for. You know, you're not asking yourself, what am I going to do if I suddenly have to get from my hometown to Portugal with my child in the snow? But that's exactly what Lena Ivanenko had to do the first week of March with her three-year-old daughter, Dasha. I was standing in line to cross the border from Ukraine into Moldova when I heard a little voice behind me asking if she could watch cartoons. It was Dasha in a pink snowsuit, clutching a little mouse doll and looking up at her mother. No, Bunny, there isn't internet here. We're almost in another country, her mother said to her. Lena was fumbling through her purse, looking for her documents. She turned to me and said, My daughter doesn't have a passport. I just have her birth certificate. Do you think they'll let us through? I reassured her that they would. It's my first time ever leaving the country. What a hell of a first foreign vacation, right? She told me with a nervous laugh. For more than a week, they'd stayed put in their hometown, Mykolaiv a port city on the Black Sea between Kherson and Odessa. Her husband had left Lena and Dasha in January to look for work on a fishing boat in Portugal. And when the war started, they all held their breath, hoping it would pass quickly. But it didn't. Soon Kherson had fallen to the Russians, and a fierce battle was raging on the outskirts of her town. Lena packed up two little suitcases, bundled Dasha in her warmest clothes, and paid a friend to drive them to the border. After that, she wasn't quite sure how she'd get to Portugal. I ended up traveling from the border to Chisinau with Lena and Dasha. In between our bursts of conversation, I got to listen in as Lena, tired, cold, and stressed, tried to make it all a game for Dasha, a kind of exciting adventure. They looked out the window trying to spot trucks or birds. They played with her dolls. <laughs> What's your name? Armen. Armen? Mine too, they played. Where are you going? Dasha's mouse asks the doll. To Kishinau. 
the Anastal replies. We are too, says Dasha. Oh, cool, we'll be on the journey together. At one point, Dasha got overexcited and started kicking the seat in front of her. Bunny, please, this isn't our car, her mother pleaded. When her dad called from Portugal to check in on them, Dasha had questions. You want to say hi to dad? Nana asked. Say hi. Hey, dad, are there little girls there? Her father laughed. Of course there are little girls, he replied. Well, what kind of little girls? Dasha wanted to know. She was already dreaming of playdates. So often in conflict, you see images of children, silent, dazed, kind of stoic. But listening in to Dasha and Nena, I was reminded all of these kids lived boisterous, normal lives just a few weeks ago. I asked Dasha if she went to preschool. I don't go to preschool right now because they're shooting in my country, she told me, totally nonplussed. They'd escaped the dangers of war, but now a different set of longer, more complicated challenges loomed, one facing nearly all the refugees who'd fled. Where would Dasha go to school? And where would Liana work? How would they survive as a family in Portugal? How long would they be away, and would they ever come back to their little house in Mykolaiv? Dasha handed me her stuffed mouse and asked me to make sure he got a good view out of the front window. It had been a gray, overcast day with little flurries of snow and not much to see out of any of the windows except low clouds and bare fields. But about an hour into the drive, as the day was getting later, for just a minute, the sun slid below the clouds as it was setting and lit the whole landscape up with this buttery, bright light. Look, Mama, sunshine, Dasha said as the landscape was transformed. Yes, Bunny, it's beautiful. Nana replied. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Erin Brown. Thanks this week to Victoria, Tatiana, Katya, Lena, and Dasha, who allowed us to tell their stories. Thanks too to Daria Agarkova for help with transcriptions and stealth skills at deciphering a three-year-old's Russian. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you've enjoyed this week's Beyond the Headlines, please subscribe to get all the latest episodes. And if you've got time, we'd really appreciate a review.